3: Hi
4: Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 30th, 2017. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the dream matchups at tennis's Australian Open, where Roger Federer beat Rafael Nadal to win his 18th Grand Slam, and Serena Williams took her 23rd major by beating her sister, Venus. Tim Layden of Sports Illustrated will also join us to talk about the athletes affected by Donald Trump's ban on immigrants from seven majority Muslim countries. And director Charlie Ebersole and running back Rod He Hate Me Smart will join us to talk about the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, This Was the XFL, about NBC and the World Wrestling Federation's epic failure to create a rival to the National Football League. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. Hello. Just in 15 seconds, Stefan, since I don't think we're going to get to this in our XFL segment, you wrote a bunch about the XFL back in the day. Did you ever consider doing an XFL book? Did it ever even like cross your mind for fi- five seconds?
5: No, and we weren't. Uh, I did a real like a three thousand word page one story about the demise of of the XFL. We were not approached by uh, any publishers. <laughs> my co author and I on that piece to do it to do a book. I would have read that book.
6: Our demographic research shows that XFL fans are huge literary
5: fans as
6: well. There's a <laughs>
5: huge overlap. The, uh, let's let's, uh, let's let's not forget that one of the XFL games got the lowest rating in the history of broad broadcast television the first game was very popular the first game was popular
4: so remind me next week uh the audience needs to hold me accountable for this i am going to read the title of stefan's F- xfl book in uh in the introduction his notional xfl book maybe if we just repeat it enough it will be willed into existence in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about Carmelo Anthony, the supremely talented New York Knicks not-quite-legend who will possibly not be a New York Nick uh, for very much longer. Join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. It's a hot deal. And you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week and a bunch of other good stuff. You can get a free trial. Sign up before this offer goes away, slate.com slash hangupplus. So here's uh, how my weekend went. I was really looking forward to that uh, Federer-Nadal tennis match. Just the
5: one that started at 3.30 in the morning, East Coast time?
4: I must have talked about this on the show before, but I love the mm-hmm. Australian Open because, A, I love tennis, and, B, there's something about sports events, whether it's, like, the Olympics when they're in Australia or just other, you know, inter- what Tour de France or any- anything else, things that just happen at odd hours eastern time in the middle of the night and if you stay up to watch it or you watch it early the next morning there's just something like cool about the fact that this like happened when nobody was paying attention to it i don't know if i'm articulating that correctly but there's something like we, it, it like exists in this like alternate universe called or, like, australia al- alternate plane yeah. exactly australia the, the water rotates anti-potal. the wrong way down the drain oh <laughs> yeah yeah, something field. like that. So I recorded it. I was all I was excited to to watch. This was a match that I was really looking forward to. And I was fact checking a piece about Yemen, as one does in this uh this time in our nation's history. And CNN.com had like a red banner at the top of the page on this article where I was like looking, all right, what are the seven countries where people can't come to the United States anymore? Is Roger Federer or his eighteenth? Grand Slam title. I'm confused, though, Josh.
5: I woke up, didn't touch my phone, went straight downstairs, turned on the television, made sure it wasn't on ESPN when I went to bed the night before. So then when well, I went to the I had, DVR. I had to do work at seven in the morning. Get up early, watch your 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 DVR, and move on with your day. That's what I. Do.
4: Well, I can tell you the story, but then you'll feel bad. It's the story that I wrote over the weekend about the you know family that's trapped in yeah. Djibouti because they're no, no, because no, of I this know. horrible thing. And I had to call the guy in uh, oh. Djibouti on the phone because of the time difference. Anyway, I was not able to watch. The the match without knowing the results, and I think it would have been immeasurably better if I had known because Federer is down a break in the fifth set, comes back and wins five straight games in a row to win six three in the fifth, three hours and thirty eight minutes. To there's so much dumb talk about legacies in sports, and this match really determines who's the greatest of all time. But if ever there was a case where that sort of talk was appropriate. It was this match because of the long history between these two guys, of the fact that Federer has just been bedeviled by Nadal over his career. The fact he was able to come back against him in the fifth set to beat him at a major for the first time that was in Wimbledon was a real capstone to his career at 35, coming back from this knee injury that people didn't think was going to happen. And I think does change how we look at him in a significant way just based on this one match. Well, coming back
6: from the knee injury is interesting. You know, with uh, David Ortiz, I remember there was a beginning, a couple of seasons ago, he started off really slow. And of course, everyone rushed to, well, that's it. He's old, that's it. But you know, there are a number of reasons why guys can be slow and then pick up again, including injury. And yes, if you're old, it takes a while to heal from injury. But once you heal from injury, why can't it be the case that you're Still very, very good, especially with what we know about training and how 35 is maybe the new 25. So I wonder if you think that uh, Federer is not, I mean, he can't play for, he can't play at the top level for eight more years. But is this a swan song or an extended plateau where, where he'll, you know, push beyond 20 the number of Grand Slam titles he's won?
5: I think that's going to be hard because of Djokovic and Murray being still at the top of their game. And and Josh can speak to the other talent in the top 10 that looks pretty good. I mean, the, the Grigor Dimitrov looked like a, a, a really quite good tennis player that yes. should win some majors himself. Baby fed. Uh, baby fed. All the, so, right. All these other guys who are clearly the second tier. Right, so I think what we've done, though, is we forget, a, hey, or maybe we don't forget, but we have to go back to 2006 when Federer made the finals in 16 out of 17 tournaments and won 12 of them. Um, he didn't lose a set in 2007 in Australia. His dominance in those years, 2004 to seven, was outrageous. And he hasn't fallen that much. I mean, no one's gonna dominate at that level, but the last three years before this knee injury, they weren't terrible, were they, Josh? I mean he was still making semifinals. He was still, you know, in the top four.
4: I would actually argue that Federer is closer to his peak level now than Nadal is to his. To his. And I think Djokovic and Murray and Favrinka at certain points have elevated their games to a level that nobody was at when Federer was at his peak. And so, you know, when you see him play um, you know, against all these guys that he beat, four top ten players in the Aussie Open, and there have been certain matches at Wimbledon in the last couple of years where you're like, I haven't never seen Federer play this well. When he is serving as well as he does, and that's allowed him to age gracefully is that he gets so many free points and when he's hitting his backhand like he did against Nadal he really does seem like his old self he moves so well his forehand is still the best or one of the best shots in the game and you know the fact that he didn't have to play Djokovic or Murray doesn't take away from this title he did beat four top ten players to win a grand slam the first time anyone had done that since 1982 wow i believe so he earned the shit out of this title but you need to get a couple breaks and you know Djokovic before Murray went on his big run last year he was having a run along the lines of you know the one that you cited that that Federer had you know he won um four grand slams in a row so the competition is just insane the idea that Federer is going to go above 20, I think, is just doesn't really hold up when you look at how good the rest of these guys are, but it was just awesome. The drama was great, and just the fact that they both seemed to appreciate so much, the fact that they were on the stage yeah. together made it really great, too. Yeah, I
5: think I complained once about Federer not appearing gracious in those post-match comments when both uh, players are standing there, but... I felt like both of these guys were so genuine and so sincere and so moved by what they were a part of. Um, they seemed like decent
6: Federer people. Federer
4: said he would have taken a draw, and it, did, it yeah. only seemed like he was
5: three-quarters lying. Right.
6: Yeah. I think we also have to question, you know, the assumption is that uh, all things being equal, the more physical, the longer the matches go, the more Federer uh, is at a disadvantage. I don't know. We won a three and a half hour match against the supposedly physically superior Nadal. They all have injuries. There's injuries are part of the game. Maybe Federer's is at a better place with uh, his injuries in the past than some of his rivals. A uh, question, question. You ready for this? Sportsmanship question. What do we think of it, within the sport of tennis, this would be fine. Within the sport of football, I watched one play of the Pro Bowl. It was a coach's challenge. I, I swear, that's the one play I saw. But that la- the last shot was challenged, even though Nadal mm-hmm. you know, pretty much knew it was in. Bad sportsmanship, or what are you going to do? Give him, give him one last ch- chance
4: after three and a half hours. It really ruined the celebratory... Nature. There's something cool about how players celebrate when yes. they win Boom. a Dive onto your
6: knees, jabbed, racket in the air. Yeah, spontaneous, yeah.
4: Federer was just kind of standing there, like not really knowing what to do. And then when he saw the Hawkeye replay on the screen, he just started kind of jumping up and down awkwardly. It, okay. it wasn't the greatest way to end a, a great match. I, I'm going
5: to disagree. It was sort of like challenging the outplay in Scrabble. If you're 80% sure that it's good, or 90% sure that it's good, there's a little glimmer of doubt. You challenge. Thank and you. that's
6: what did. Thank Nadal you for did. making the analogy we could all understand, Stefan.
4: The drama in Federer Nadal is between the lines and the way that those guys play against each other, what a fascinating matchup it is athletically. With Venus and Serena, with few exceptions, those matches have never been very high quality, and the drama around it is just around their personal stories and around it's the greatest story in sports. The fact that these two sisters, you know, grew up in Compton, uh, you know, their father had this dream to have them be professional tennis stars. And it was realized, and they've been, you know, Serena's the gr- greatest player of all time. Her sister's not that far behind her. Um, and the fact that Venus was able to come back from hurt autoimmune disorder at the age of thirty six and make it to another final. This was a celebration. Serena won in straight sets, six four, six four. Not a bad match, not a great match. But I must confess that in the like pre match like hype video and in the like after the match when they were like talking about each other, I got a little teary eyed. It's un- it is unbelievable. I the can't story. I
5: can't think of a a parallel or anything that even comes close in sports. Not just the the two sisters or two siblings become great at what they do.
4: And I think they love each other more than Federer and Nadal love each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's genuine. <laughs> yeah. But just
5: the idea that in this individual sport, some of the greatest moments that you're going to have to have are going to be against your sibling.
4: And you have to... Can you relate to that? Like with growing up and playing, you know, chess wiffle ball. Against my brother,
5: wiffle ball in the backyard. Um but it really is—it is a remarkable thing. And I know at the beginning of their careers, Josh, there was talk, and this I think played into the the, the borderline racist, if not openly racist, um, uh, attitudes toward the Williams sisters in their early years about them throwing matches when they played each other, not trying as hard as they would against other uh, opponents. But. To hear them talk about it and to see how Venus reacted after this match that every time you won, I won, Serena, was really moving. Tears. And to conjure the pressure that must be on them to have to go out and do this and and shut out who's on the opposite on the other side of the net, it's a remarkable thing in sports. I like your
6: supposition about the sisters. Can you imagine a Susie Navratilova or a Millie Jean King, which is weird. I guess she would have been born Millie Moffat and then married uh, a king. Well, there also. was a Jeannie
4: Everett. <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually know that until I heard Chris yeah, Everett talk I about that during that. the broadcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris just beat the crap out of her and then well, th- the Mac and she was Ro never heard too, from again.
5: But, you know, Patrick wasn't nearly as, as good as his brother. Uh, can we finish this up, Josh, by talking a little bit about the age of the participants in the final. Nadal was the youngest at 30. And what were the others? 35, 35,
4: 35 and 36.
5: 36. Um, Carl Bialik on 538 had a piece looking at how tennis has trended upward in terms of the age um, of their best players. And partly that's because these guys and women are so great that they have dragged the average age of the semifinalists and finalists and majors up with them. But I was reading some other stuff about how the game has changed, too, that has contributed to that, the the composition of the courts, the composition of the strings on the rackets. Is that a fair assessment about what's changed and why there are so many players in their 30s? Or is it also just the conditioning and the way people train and how they pace themselves and, and spread out their tournaments?
4: I would say three things. I think, number one, that it's just such a physically demanding sport that it actually takes longer for – guy, or this is at least what they claim to, like, build up the training base and to be, like, fit and strong enough um, to, you know, endure in these long, physically demanding matches. And I guess one and two are related. Just training is so much better now than it was in the 70s, you know, when it was, you know, Borg being a classic example of a guy who retired very young. In his 20s. Um, and – I think you are just able to play longer than you were back then. And third, maybe the most important is just it's so fucking remunerative to play uh, tennis. If you're Serena Williams or Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal or Venus Williams, it's like, why would you quit? (laughs) You can make a huge amount of cash um, and... We talked about this with Ben Rothenberg on uh, a podcast before. Just the generation that's come after Djokovic, Nadal, um, Federer, uh, Murray, he referred to as generation suck, like guys who just have never won anything, like not even won a, a Master Series event, like the top events below the Grand Slams, like much less a Grand Slam, like, you know, guys like Raunich and Nishikori and Dimitrov, who have just never risen up to challenge, um, you know, the top players. And that could just be an accident of history. And people seem to think that the generation following Sasha Zverev, um, even some of the American players uh, are going to do better and seem like they're achieving stuff at an earlier age. So we shall see. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. On Friday, Donald Trump signed an executive order halting immigration for 90 days from Iraq, Syria, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen, seven predominantly Muslim countries. There are two NBA players, Luol Deng of the Lakers and the Bucks Thon Maker, who were born in what is now South Sudan. And the NBA has reportedly reached out to the State Department for guidance on what to do, because I'm sure the State Department has very clear directives from on high, about how this is all being implemented, they're just going to get a very clear answer. Mo Farah, the Somali British runner who won double gold in each of the last two Olympics, lives in the United States, but is currently abroad training. He wrote a message on Facebook over the weekend saying, it's deeply troubling that I will have to tell my children that daddy might not be able to come home to explain why the president has introduced a policy that comes from a place of ignorance and prejudice. Now, though, Farah's spokesperson cited a statement from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office saying the order doesn't apply to Farah because he wouldn't be traveling from one of the affected countries. Again, because this has all been implemented so clearly by our wise and judicious government. Finally, Lopez Lamang, an American distance runner, came to the U.S. as a refugee from Sudan and carried the flag for the U.S. at the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics. He told Tim Layden in a piece for Sports Illustrated, when I saw the news, I cried. I was very emotional about it. What if that document had been signed in 2001? Where would I be? I would have no career. I would have no degree. I would probably be dead. Tim Layden is joining us now. Thanks for being with us, Tim. Yeah, sure. And tell us about your conversation with uh, Lopez Lemong.
1: Yeah, so I talked to Lopez uh, Sunday late afternoon. Uh, I reached out to his uh, you know, people. His uh, his sort of coach manager and uh, thought that you know Lopez is a he's a worldly guy that's been through a lot, and I obviously he's been through a lot more than ninety nine point nine percent of people. He was in a refugee camp for ten years and uh, separated from his family. So I thought he might have some thoughts on this, and and he did. And uh, you know, you read that that one quote that he just just was very frightened when he very emotionally hit hard when he first heard this thing. And then the the other tributary to this in Lamong's case is eight years after he came to the United States, uh, he brought he met for the first time his two of his younger brothers and, and helped them come to the United States. And both of them are uh, competing in track and field for US colleges and and they're here on a student visa and and, and Lamong is concerned, obviously, like many people that they might not have since they aren't citizens and they don't have permanent resident status that they could get deported. So he's just, he's finds himself in a very uh, frightened place right now, which I think probably he never expected to get back to again. And I'm, I'm sure that that story is shared by many, 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 many people right now.
5: And I think that's the connectivity here with sports. I think we, we don't realize at least we don't think about it often, just how many athletes who play in the United States uh, come here to train, are welcomed by universities, are welcomed by federations, um, are welcomed by professional sports leagues. Um, it is, I think, a, an underreported in some ways, or at least something that we've, we just assume is the way it is. But then you see these stories coming from the NBA about concerns, about Major League Soccer's got some concerns, or a couple guys in MLS who uh, – uh, played for represented Iran and Iraq's national teams. Uh, so this this is a, a, a reasonable you know, intersection of, of sports and, and current events and troubling.
1: Yeah, because in talking about the track and field and running worlds, and this has been going on for a long time where athletes from, and, and not necessarily a lot from those seven countries, although certainly some from those countries, Somalia in particular and, and Sudan also, have been coming here, as you say, to train, and not just to train, but to compete on road race circuits where they can win prize money and and, and things like that, and, and they get sponsored by shoe companies to come here. Um, there's At any given time, there's a huge subpopulation of foreign athletes who are not citizens of the United States and not permanent residents of the United States, living in dormitories, living in makeshift apartments that are put up by... By uh, by agents or by shoe companies, it's a pretty large population. I mean, it's a it's an entire sports league unto itself at, at any given time, and and I imagine all those people are confused today, like a lot of us. But it affects them more than more than uh, U.S. citizens. And to fill in
6: a few more details on the Lamont family, and this I mostly got from your reporting so you know it, you know, his brothers are 19 and 20, and they came here in 2009. And Lopez says they don't even speak the language of Somalia. They're effectively American, so their whole life depends on it. And Lamont is married to uh, Brittany Morial, who was a runner at the Air Force Academy, and now she's a captain in the Air Force. So beyond just holding the flag, this guy couldn't be more of an American story, it would seem to me. And I was wondering, how much did you feel that you are not pushing him, but, you know, his story's out there because you called him. Do you sense that, you know, he would be really outspoken on his own um, about this? He seems like the sort of guy who could cut through a lot of the politics and appeal to maybe people who are sympathetic to the ban in general.
1: Yeah, the... A couple of things. I mean, he he knew I wanted to speak to him and it took him about a day to get back to me. So I think he wanted to get his thoughts in order. And I think his largest concern is for his brothers. He's he's a citizen. He's not worried about being deported. And I think he knows that he's well respected. Uh, I I just I. And the, the other thing is, when we were talking, he never said the name Trump at any time. He never said the president. Uh, he did at one time say the administration, so I think he wanted to, he wanted to walk up to the line of of being critical but not cross it, and and he wanted to express what his, what his experience was like and how how he feels about the United States, how he feels that the diversity of the country is, you know, what he says what what makes us strong is our diversity, and you know, it's just you know I thought that. The thing he said that I used at the end of the story, which he did say at the end of the interview, I wasn't doing. I wasn't moving the words around to fit my narrative. It was one of the last things he said: "Was you know, I, I want people to come and talk to me. I want them to get to know me and other immigrants. Eat my food. Come to my home. Understand why we came here. It was a very, a very welcoming and open thing that he was trying to say. And and you know, the guys. The other thing I'll say about him is." Um, you know, I, naturally, when you post something like this on social media, you, you get trolled by people explaining why you're inaccurate in proposing this and why this would have happened at other times and, and, and why some certain specifics may not have applied. Um, the point is, I think, the largest point here is that he's scared. And that's what struck me is that, you know, this is a guy who did everything right. Like you guys say, he's more American than most Americans I know. And yet now he's sitting in this apartment of Flagstaff doing you know, high altitude training. And he's scared because he doesn't know what all this means. And I think he's worried without putting words in his mouth that, that the people in charge in Washington are a little on the edge. And, and, uh, and I, think he's, I think a lot of people are scared. And that fear came across.
4: Yeah, I mean, to just amplify that point, I was talking to an immigration lawyer over the weekend, part of reporting for it story i was working on that was the thing that she said all of her clients are getting in touch with her just terrified that they're going to get deported even those who this ban doesn't apply to and for those who this ban does apply to when people respond like oh it's only 90 days and you know stronger vetting is going to be implemented in those 90 days and then people will come On through was like, do you actually, what basis do we have to believe that that's going to happen? It's a temporary ban, yes, but they could just implement a longer ban after that. I mean, there's been reporting that this is going to be expanded to other countries, and we don't want to, you know, amplify the fear ourselves, but that's exactly what people in this situation are going to feel and are going to think is what's going to be next. And let me throw that on back to sports. And what's next for sports is how
5: we consider the United States' relationship with the rest of the world. The U.S. is a, Los Angeles is a finalist for the 2024 Olympics. The International Olympic Committee is going to be picking a winner in September. Uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation has been considered a front runner to host the 2026 World Cup, possibly in a joint bid with Mexico or Canada or both of those countries. At this point, I mean you've covered the Olympic movement for a long time, Tim. What are the possible steps here? On the one hand, the IOC has been very friendly to autocratic regimes in the past. On the other, could the USOC say, "We're out of here"? We, we, if if we have a country that is not willing to to, to welcome athletes from all over the world, we don't feel morally justified had, in bidding.
4: I hadn't actually considered that this would help the US yeah, chances for the Olympics right? yeah. and the World Cup. Yeah, yeah I think. I mean, yeah, f-
1: sure. I mean, you saw. It. On Olympics in in Russia, you saw on Olympics in China. Another Olympics scheduled for China, um, upcoming, um, yeah, the Winter Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I have seen people reporting on this in the last few days that have taken this both ways. That have that have argued that that the um, that the bureaucrats that run the International Olympic Committee actually like Trump. And uh, I, without really supporting that with, with sound evidence, and that's the Trump who ran for president, not the Trump who's, who is president. And I, I think that those are different things for people considering whether they would award the Olympics to the United States. And clearly, um, the people that are uh, putting forth the, the LA bid, um, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, those people have come out very, very strongly in opposition, uh, to the immigration ban of, of this weekend and, and to almost everything else that the, that the Trump administration has done in a week and a couple of days. So, I mean, what you, clearly what you have, it, you have a disagreement going on here, which doesn't do anything to strengthen your bid. Um, at the same time, Paris is one of the finalists, and they also have a potential political upheaval mm-hmm. in their country. So it's, it's, it's very hard to sort all this out right now. Um, it, it's hard for me to believe on a common sense level that an exclusionary immigration policy is going to benefit a company that's trying to acquire the most inclusionary event on the planet. Mm-hmm. doesn't make sense to me. And I can't see how it would help. At the same time, I, I don't ever want to predict what the International Olympic Committee might do.
6: Yeah. So, uh, by the way, Trump did speak with uh, Thomas Bach of the Olympic Committee. And Bach has said, to like Trump just fine? It, it will be weird. Let's say Le Pen wins in France. I'll have to uh, maybe in the second day remind myself, oh, yeah, there is one silver lining. Maybe the U.S. Olympic bid just jumped ahead. But I guess the big thing is it's in September. So much can change uh, until September. But what about, Tim? do you know anything about, there are other just international competitions, right? So I've been to, in Grand Central, actually, a, uh, a three-way Olympic wrestling match in Iran was one of those countries. I mean, there are meets and uh, countries invited all the time that, of course, you have to come in in the spirit of international competition. There's, it's, there's reason to believe that those will be imperiled because of this order, No.
1: Well, yeah, just as you're saying it, I'm trying to think of how you would uh, – I don't even know what the language is in this immigration document that allows for an entire team of Iranian wrestlers to enter the United States or an entire team of Syrian athletes. I don't I, – I, this is something I, I don't uh, – I are there exceptions written in for this to happen? Well, um, in the
4: executive order, it says that they can approve things on a case-by-case basis or if it's in the national interest i mean it's basically just we can do whatever we want to do when we want to do it and again that's kind of back to the reason that people are afraid that people just don't seem to have clear directives on what the rules are and what the exceptions are and so if they wanted to let a team of iranian wrestlers and they could
1: Well, then the question becomes, does a team of Iranian wrestlers want to come here? Or does, over time, the United States become a place where where athletes from other countries do not want to come and compete? And obviously, they're under the thumb of their own international federations. So a lot of those decisions become political in nature, and individual athletes would be left to take stands on their own. and, And the entire situation gets very, very messy. And seven months till the Olympic vote is a long time. Um, I I just think that it's it's gonna be very it's gonna be very difficult to sort this out in the short term.
4: Tim Layden as a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, his interview with Lopez Lamong was on Sports Illustrated's website over the weekend. Tim, thanks a lot for being on the show. Yeah, thanks guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly
0: from Bloomberg. This is the deal.
4: Back in 2000, having conquered the Y2K bug, the United States of America was ready to take on bigger challenges. Enter Dick Ebersall of NBC Sports and Vince McMahon of the World Wrestling Federation, who joined forces in an attempt to take the high and mighty NFL down a couple of pegs. The XFL, which was created in 2000 and held its only season in 2001, was premised on the idea that, in the words of McMahon, The National Football League was for panty wastes, that the rules were boring, the hits weren't hard enough, and the cheerleaders wore way too many clothes. After generating a huge amount of buzz and a big opening audience, the league tanked. A couple of things from the XFL have endured, though. The pioneering way in which the action was filmed and in which the players were miked, and the nickname that Las Vegas Outlaws running back Rod Smart wore on the back of his jersey, he hate me. The league's very brief rise and slightly longer fall is documented in a new documentary, This Was the XFL, that's part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series. It premieres Thursday night, February 2nd at 9 p.m. Eastern. Joining us now to discuss are the director, Charlie Ebersol, son of NBC Sports' Dick Ebersol, and XFL legend, Rod, he hate me smart. Hey, guys.
0: Hey, man.
2: Hey, how's it going?
4: It's going great. Uh, Thank you both for joining us, Charlie. I want to start with you. The question that I came away with from uh, the movie, which is great, everybody should check it out, is, you know, were there a couple inflection points where if things happened differently, the XFL might have endured or might have lasted more than a season? Or was this enterprise doomed from the beginning? I know what my answer is, but (laughs) I'm curious what yours is, Charlie.
0: Um, Yeah, I absolutely think there were inflection points. I think there were three major ones. The first one was when they started the league, they only had a year to do it because Vince had set up this time frame. And so the football ops people that they sort of got relegated to hiring to run it really weren't on board with Vince's vision. And so the game itself, the, the operations of football, the playbook, everything wasn't really in line with what Vince was selling in the marketing. So it led to them saying, oh, yeah, of course the players can get together in 28 days in practice and get up to speed, which clearly didn't work. And then the third thing was, the second thing being the short training schedule, the third thing was they picked the wrong game to lead with. It was good for Rod because it created he ate me, and he was obviously an NFL-caliber great football player. But the New York and New Jersey hitmen were a disastrously bad team, and, had they, and two weeks before the first game kicked off, they decided to go with that game instead of the game they originally planned which was the Orlando game which was an incredible game they the 34-37 the stadium ran out of beer in the third quarter i mean it was everything the XFL promised but the the, the XFL promised not having enough beer did not get to see that
4: charlie the XFL promised not having enough beer
0: <laughs> well it promised an audience that was going to consume that much beer certainly. <laughs>
5: Um, Charlie, uh, you know, I, I wrote about this when it happened. I did a long, uh, uh tick about the failure of the XFL for the wall street journal right after the league ended. And one media buyer told me at the time that the problem was that it wasn't wrestling and it wasn't football and they alienated both audiences. And as you point out in the documentary, this was really Vince McMahon's fault for overselling it. And your dad's share some blame as he has very uh, willingly accepted that they bought into it, that it was a great sell job, but they didn't have the product to deliver, that you really couldn't change the nature of football, especially in, you know, three months.
0: Right. yeah, And I agree with that completely. And I think certainly that's why the league ended up failing. The point I'm making, though, is, is that you asked whether or not the league could have survived. And I think the league would have survived if the product on the field had been reflective in any level of what was going on. And and the truth was they had really mediocre football in that first game. I mean, Rod had a great game, but outside of him, nobody really showed up, and they had a terrible game. If you look at the later games, if you look at the game that was played in Orlando, if you look at the game the next weekend that, despite the power failure, wasn't actually a very, very fun game to watch, they had games that were better than, call it an NCAA game, Had they provided that that first night, I don't think you see the level of attrition that happened in the second week. I don't look. What they marketed was ridiculous. But but if they produced an actual quality product on any level, I don't think you would have seen everyone run away because I think the premise that spring football could work is true. It's just never been executed um, nearly close to flawless.
6: Charlie, the question that arose for me from the documentary was about the relationship between your dad, Dick Ebersole, and Vince McMahon. No, I have an impression of Vince McMahon, nothing I saw in this documentary uh, changed that impression, which which is, for everything else in showmanship, a guy who takes his human talent... Not for granted, but he's just not very humane in the way he deals with his workers, where the impression I get from your dad is quite the opposite. You know, you you read about the history of Saturday Night Live and everything he does, uh, respecting talent. And, you know, I know that your mom is a former actress. Are we married? So here's what I don't understand. Does your dad look at Vince as a guy he couldn't be and says to himself, you know, I'll excuse This one part of him that really, you know, treats wrestlers pretty poorly, uh, put these guys in the XFL in harm's way, or does he overlook that part of McMahon, or am I getting it wrong, and is that just part of the bluster?
0: I fundamentally disagree with the premise of your question, to be perfectly honest. I think that Vince has built a business largely based on creating superheroes around a sport that is naturally violent. I think the last 15 years has largely been about a much louder group of people who have become obsessed with the idea that professional sports football or professional sports entertainment like WWE is somehow supposed to be this incredibly coddling event. But if you ask Rod, and this question was asked of him when we did the premiere in New York, that professional football is a violent game. WWE wrestling is a violent entertainment sport. It is no different than a lot of the stunt coordinators in the in the uh, you know Hollywood, etc. And I think that people who don't participate in the event and who watch from the sidelines, who don't really understand the game on a day-to-day basis, pick and choose specific stories. And, and things that feed the narrative, which by the way is what happened for a year leading up to the launch of the XFL. And they dive into that. And I think I'm, I guess I'm a little disappointed that that, that the film didn't achieve that sort of second layer of Vince that I think most people don't get to see. But if you were to talk to a handful of the major talent that I think that works with Vince on a daily basis, this is a, this is a business that has evolved dramatically over 30 years. When he took over in the early 80s, uh, wrestling was, a fragmented disaster and he created a national brand and over the 30 years, it's evolved and matured and they've, they've developed things like, you know, uh, pension plans and all these other things. But this was a family business being run out of a garage when he took it over and he turned it into a global business that made a lot of these stars who they are.
4: Rod, how conscious were you of using the XFL as a vehicle um, to make yourself into a star?
2: Well, uh, you know, coming under the genius entertainment guy, Vince McMahon, you know, he, uh, you know, he's all about entertainment. So being able to come in and create a character, uh, which was me more than anything, you know, uh, all I did was add a, a nickname on the back of my jersey and, and, and show my talent. So, uh, it, it was able to help me catapult myself to the NFL and, um, you know that's what it was all about if you understand mr mcmahon you understand what his brand is and what he's about you know he's he's about entertainment and uh and and that's i you know that's all i've known him to be be about uh you know i grew up watching the w, WCW, wwf and and uh so i understood you know it was entertainment you know you you see these wrestlers you know as a kid you watch it and you look at it and be like oh man this is real i want to be a wrestler when i grow up but then as you get Older and start understanding it's entertainment, it's for the fans, it's for the people. You know, uh, that, that's what it's about, and that's you look at any any professional sport, um, no matter what it is, uh, it's it's entertainment. Well, tell, tell, you know, tell us the story, but, uh, Rod, you know, uh, with, with Mr. McMahon. You know, he just put a little extra uh, icing tell on us top tell
5: us the story, you know? Rod, about when you were told that you guys could put nicknames on the back of your jerseys, how you came up with He Hate Me, and whether you were prepared when NBC's camera and microphone were stuck in your face on the field to tell the story of your nickname?
2: <laughs> well, for one, I uh, I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, it, it was it was a, a shock, but it was, you know, it was fun, you know, but I'm spontaneous, so I like spontaneous things. It, it was very spontaneous, so uh, it's almost like ad-libbing when you're uh, doing acting or, or, or stand-up comedy or something, you know, uh, you just kind of go with the flow. So, uh, you know, my first thing was, you know, hey, look at those guys over there. They all hate me. He hate me. He hate me. And, and and that was my thing. That was my cue. So, uh, you know, prior to that, uh, you know, we uh came into uh uh training camp and whatnot, uh before the season started, had like less than a month to practice and get prepared and uh, you know, me coming into it, I'm thinking, uh, okay, we got equal opportunity, it's a new league, uh everybody's equal, but you know, that, that wasn't the reality of it once I got there with the team and stuff, you know, you got big names from these big-time schools and, uh, you know, people already putting them in positions to start and and be, uh, you know, the big big name on the team. But in my mind, hey, there, there are no starters. There are no big names. You know, we're all equals here. And, you know, if you want to be the big name or the star, you're going to have to prove it. I don't care who else out there you have to prove it to, but you got to prove it to me first because I'm one of the guys that's fighting for a position on the squad to help, this team win. And I was going to make them hate me for it, whoever it was, whether it was a teammate, opponent. It, it didn't matter to me. You know, I, I was going to make somebody hate me at that point when that ball gets in my hand. So, um, you know, that was, that was pretty much my, my thing about the, uh, the, he hate me.
6: Do you think the danger of the league as emphasized and implemented with the things like scramble for the ball was an asset to the league, um, or wound up hurting the league in the end?
0: Well, I think that it got people to tune in initially, and I think the fact that it didn't really ever live up to anything because it really couldn't, in a lot of respects, um, probably really hurt them. I mean, I think that you're seeing, even in the political climate today, of promising something that's going to be very black and white and brutal and all this other stuff, and then implementation is not necessarily going to look and feel the same. The XFL suffered from that. Big time, and I think that they were so ridiculous in the marketing of explosions and wrestling balls and nude cheerleaders and all the other stuff that, that what what could actually be delivered on camera when you're not scripting it and you know the rock can't deliver exactly the right line and fake the right injury is very very hard to live up to.
4: Well, I think that the XFL was definitely onto the fact that there's something stodgy and corporate. And, you know, frankly, uh, terrible about the NFL and the way that they, you know, run their league. And, you know, Antonio Brown can't twerk in the end zone because, you know, heaven forbid, you know, think of of the children. But (laughs) I'm not as sure about the idea. And people say that have said this for decades that people tune in to the NFL because they want to see a helmet to helmet hit or they want to see a guy just destroyed across the middle. I'm not, I would separate those two things out. Like, I think the XFL was right about part one, but I think there's enough violence just in football as it is that the NFL has done just fine without having, you know, safety's attempt to paralyze guys over the middle and just having the wrecking ball and the explosions. I'm not sure, like, that was really the thing to focus on. No, I agree with you. I I think that the thing
0: that that the XFL sort of meant, that's why I said they got 90% of it right and 10% they got wrong. The 10% they got wrong was they just added a little bit too much hyperbole to everything and didn't spend enough time making sure the core product worked. Had the football just been good football, not NFL good, but better let's say better than college football but not quite the NFL, I think that the product would still be around today because I think what we have cleanly seen is that there's room for people to come in and disrupt the professional sports leagues. And if you had the, the, the power of NBC behind it to really drive you know, the, the legitimacy of it, it would have worked. Um, I think that what they did is that they, did such, they moved so quickly, largely because Vince is used to get it out there and then adjust it as the audience reacts to it which was unsustainable in this case, because in prime time, you you can't be doing a dress rehearsal on national television. It doesn't work.
5: I think that's a good point. Uh, I remember at the time, this made sense. What didn't make sense was the marketing, but as a business proposition, an alternative football league made sense, particularly for NBC. Your dad and Turner had as far back as 1998 after NBC decided not to bid on the NFL saying that they would have been losing up to or more than $100 million a year on the contract. They looked at starting an alternative league. And at the time that the XFL came around, when Vince called your dad and suggested this, um, your father was loading up on alternative sports. Look, NBC still had the Olympics and golf, but he was putting on bull riding and skateboarding and curling and the Arena League eventually. So there was an appetite at... NBC to do something different, and your father, I think, believed that there was an opportunity to do spring football in a better way than, say, the that, USFL did. I would
0: take that one step farther, which is to say this, is that in 98, when the NFL went to NBC and said, you have to pay $500 million right. a year, which meant that NBC would lose $100 million a year on the NFL, it was basically enough is enough. And my dad and Shanzer, um, who was his president at the time, both sat down and were like, this is never going to end. They want us to lose $100 million this time, and in four years after we've lost almost a half a billion dollars, they're going to want us to lose $200 million a year, and yep. $300 million a year, et cetera, which, by the way, is exactly what they did. The idea behind the XFL, and when they were having the discussions with Turner, was if we could own the league, and it even kind of worked, and we were making a little bit of money, making a little bit of money and having football versus losing a ton of money and only having the rights to broadcast for a limited amount of time is unsustainable. So they, they built a business model around it. When the XFL and uh, when, when Vince announced the XFL and my dad called him and said, let's do this together, the thing that NBC brought to it was an understanding of how, look, yeah, we're going to lose a little bit of money the first two years, but it's going to be nothing compared to what... Uh, the, CBS, I mean, CBS lost $100 million that year. Fox, 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 took, a four, Fox took a $400,
5: $400 million right and down. And NBC
0: lost thirty six. And by the way... Another thing that's really, we don't get into this in a film, but we can talk about this on this podcast. NBC actually ended up making money on the XFL deal because they invested in the WWE as part of of buying into the XFL. So they got a big piece of WWE's IPO, or just after the IPO, they got a big piece of the stock in the WWE. And so over the term of the last 16 years, NBC has definitely made their money back um, over and over. Um, which I think is largely misunderstood in the press when they talk about what a, quote, disaster the XFL was, as a business deal, it was at, at worst a push or a wash, and at best it probably made them tens of millions of dollars. And elongated the relationship between NBC Universal and WWE, which led to Monday Night Raw having its run on USA.
6: Rod, were your NFL teammates curious about the XFL? Did it give you a reputation coming in? What did they think?
2: Well, actually, you know, they uh they accepted me in their brotherhood as if I was already one of the guys in the league. Uh, you know, they invited me with open arms, and uh, you know, apparently uh a lot of the guys watched the XFL and and they loved it. You know, it, it, 'cause at the end of the day, it's football, and uh and, and and one of the main things uh they enjoyed was the nickname I I had, and uh but not only that, but me being able to uh, show my skill set. So when when I was able to, you know, promote that and and whenever I came to the NFL, the guys loved me. You know, they just accepted me as if I was drafted in the NFL or something.
4: So I demand. Total honesty from you, Rod. You played in high school, you played at Western Kentucky, you played in the XFL, you played in the NFL, you played in the Canadian Football League, and you played in the All American Football League, well, which never existed, but you were going to play in it. <laughs> where does the where does the XFL rank? Like how good let's let's have a very frank assessment. Like where does it rank in that stack of, of leagues in terms of the quality of play and the quality of the players?
2: Um uh, I, I will put it at Number two, uh, behind
4: the NFL. Ahead of Canada. And
2: that's my honest opinion. Ahead of what? Canada. I I didn't play for Canada. I don't count that. What's Canada?
4: What is Canada? You don't count count the Edmonton Eskimos? What's the CFL? I I don't count that. All right. We're going to start an international... I was
2: there for like a week.
4: Okay. (laughs) We're going to start an international incident on this podcast. I like it. Um, So... The movie premieres um, this Thursday, February 2nd, at 9 p.m. Eastern. It's called This Was the XFL. Charlie Ebersole is the director. Rod Smart, he hate me, is Mr. XFL, the star of the show. Thanks to both of you guys for coming on. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you, guys. Have a great day.
4: Thank
0: you.
2: We became brothers that day when he did that to us.
3: We made a change.
2: Fighting for what we deserve.
3: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
4: Now it is time for After Balls, and we just spoke with He Hate Me. There were a bunch of other players that had nicknames on the back of their jerseys. There was a long uh, kind of segment of the film. Devoted to a player named T-Bagger. We didn't get much of the backstory on that though. Um, Stefan, what created big
6: government. The, didn't want his taxes <laughs> going to places, he didn't approve.
4: What do you what do you got on uh, XFL nicknames for a
5: uh, I got a list in front of me. I like Deathblow, Jamal Duff of the Los Angeles X-Treme, and Erupt. That was good. E hyphen Rupt, Eric Heron, also of the Extreme. Uh Big Cat, Antonio Anderson of the Memphis Maniacs, Baby Boy, Haven Fields, New York, New Jersey hitman. Sa- Big Time. How, how about Samurai, which is an only an okay nickname
6: unless you realize it was by Shinzo Yamada of the Memphis Ooh, Maniacs. Ooh,
5: that's pretty good too. Ox was a good nickname. That was short for some, some guy's last name.
6: Also really important um, Scrabble word.
5: <laughs> there's that too. So should we pick one? You pick one. I'm going to pick one.
4: Oof. Come on, Stefan. Tough
5: call. I'm gonna, go with, Jim. I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Death Blow. What do you <laughs> think, Mike? How about Tater?
6: <laughs> tater is pretty good too. How about, ch- How about Chuck Wagon by Chris Chuckawama? Sorry, by Chris Chuckwuma. <laughs> That's also Chuck Schumer's nickname and nickname, <laughs> I think.
4: All right. Mike, what is your Chuck Wagon?
6: <laughs> well, I have to say that I'm mildly interested in the Super Bowl at best. I will be having a Super Bowl party, which is good. You need the distraction of the party because there's only a Super Bowl anyone could be at most mildly interested in. But I do have a prediction. And my prediction is that the losing quarterback will be the second best losing quarterback performance we've ever seen in a Super Bowl. I'm going to say the second best. Now, Who would you say was the best losing quarterback Super Bowl performance? This is a tough question, but I think there's a clear, a clear winner. What do you guys think? Um, top, top of your head. Jake Delhomme. That is correct. Jake Delhomme in uh, the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots. These are great stats. He, what have I won? He had you win a Jake you win a uh, you win a Boomer reference to Jake Delhomme. Daylight come and I want to go home. Jake DeLome (laughs) threw for 323 yards, three touchdowns against no interceptions. If you rate passers, if you rank passers by rating, the three highest were Lawrence McCutcheon, Robert Newhouse, and Antoine Randall L, all positioned players who threw one pass and had it completed. But the list of uh, quarterbacks, you either assort by rating or by yards per attempt, which is pretty good. The winners do really well. Um, Among the top... 10. Uh, wait, let me get this right. So Jake DeLohm had the best performance and he was uh, only 15th best. So the 14 best performing quarterbacks by ratings all won the Super Bowl. Kurt Warner had a pretty good Super Bowl with three touchdowns, one interception, and 377 yards when he was with Arizona. That's the other really good one. And in recent years, Russell Wilson also had a good performance in a losing effort and the thirty, I think the 30th, because there's some noise in this with uh, Bob Lee of Minnesota appearing on the list. But Roger Staubach then is ranked 32nd in terms of QB rating. And I believe only the fourth quarterback with a QB rating over 100 who lost a Super Bowl. So usually, sometimes the winners don't do well, but the losers usually do well. Now, the reason I think that the losing quarterback is going to do well, it's not that Tom Brady can't help but do well. He's had some bad games this year, you know. His games, even against the Jets, he was rated, I think, a 60. He was Oh, that wasn't his worst game. His game against Denver, he was rated a 68. He had, he had a, you know, a two touchdown, two interception game. It's just that the Atlanta defense, I don't think, is very good. Now, the New England defense is very good. But let's say that Matt Ryan does any better than his second worst game of the season. So his worst game of the season was against Philadelphia. He had 267 yards, one pick, one TD, which would be, which is actually an above average Super Bowl. Of course, going back to the 70s and 80s, those, you know, you didn't get those sky high number of throwing attempts. But uh, Ryan... Had more touchdowns than interceptions in every game but three, and in three games he had one touchdown, one interception, and other than that, Philadelphia game, the lowest rated he was was eighty-seven, and then the sec, and then above that he had a game with a QB rating of ninety. I mean, the QB rating sucks, but it's a decent. Um, Proxy for doing pretty well. I mean, if he does, if he just did as well as his worst game of the season, it would be something like. And he loses, it would be something like the seventh best game that a losing quarterback ever had. But I don't think he's going to challenge Jake Delhomme. I just see him having uh, a game akin to either Delhomme or I say Home and DeLome, or or um, Kurt Warner. Uh, so we really could see the best. The best game by a losing quarterback. That's what I'm hoping for. And that is my one scintilla of interest in the Super Bowl.
4: Okay, there we go. Stefan, what is your chuck wagon?
5: Uh, Well, we just had that interesting conversation with Tim Layden of Sports Illustrated about the effect of uh, the administration's ban on uh, visits from several countries. Josh said who they are. Somalia, Sudan, Iraq, Syria, Iran, Libya, and Yemen. I want to look at one other way to take a look at this through sports. Uh, Together, those countries sent 111 athletes to the Summer Olympics in Rio last year. They are not famous or rich, obviously, like Mo Farah or, or Luol Deng, but they have been told they are not welcome in the United States. So here's my proposal. The Seven Nation Games. In the United States, all expenses paid. Nike can do this. They sponsor Mo Farah. On Sunday night, Nike chairman and CEO Mark Parker issued a statement denouncing the ban I'm calling on the company to, quote, stand up for our values. Well, here is your chance, Mark Parker, to stand up for your values. Announce the Seven Nation Games immediately. Schedule it before the 90-day executive order expires. Send the first invitations to the Olympians. I even have your ad. Nike athletes, celebrities, children, whoever, reading the names of the athletes from the seven countries. Let's honor a few of those athletes right now. Iraq. Wahid Abdul Ridah boxing, Hussein Al Ameri, Judo, Mohammed Yassim Al Kafaji rowing, not welcome in the United States. Syria, Mayed Al-Din Ghazal, high jump, Mohammed Qasem, judo, not welcome in the United States. Iran, Kianush Rostami, weightlifting, Hassan Tazdani, wrestling, not welcome in the United States. Somalia, Marian Nu Muse. 400 meters. Mohammed Daud Mohammed, 5,000 meters, not welcome in the United States. Ali El Garadi, archery. Al Hussein Gamboor, rowing. Dania Hagul, swimming, not welcome in the United States. Sudan, Abdallah Targan, steeplechase. Amina Bakit, track. Sudan, Abdallah Targan, steeplechase. Islam Monir Suleiman Judo not welcome in the United States. Yemen Mohammed Rage fifteen hundred meters. Zayad Mater Judo Nuran Ba Matraf swimming not welcome in the United States. We welcome you to the United States. Let's just do it together. I think that's pretty good. That would work. Josh, what's your chuck wagon?
4: So was the XFL premise faulty and if so in which way was it faulty? I kind of doubt that the extremification of of like mainstream sports is ever really going to work because as the movie got into you got all these like old-timey football guys they're not really into your like scramble for the ball rules and you actually have to You know, be constrained by, uh, you know, the football that we know and many of us love. And to make something like that uh, extreme seems hard. Uh, Slam ball, I think, maybe came the closest. Slam ball being the modification of basketball on trampolines started uh, in the early 2000s. It was invented by this guy named Mason Gordon. And it was around for a bit. I think we, I might have afterballed about it before. Slam ball was kind of a phenomenon. You got your trampolines and your dunking. It was on like legitimate, you know, CBS, NBC. Um, and I thought that slam ball did not exist anymore. But in fact, slam ball has gone international. It is now in China. I do not have any sense of whether it is big in China or not, but it is in China and on the official Slamball website, here is the narrative that they tell Slamball exploded into China on CCTV5, the largest national channel dedicated to sports, posted impressive TV ratings driven entirely by word of mouth and the shareable qualities of the games. This led to the establishment of Slamball Asia and the first World Championship Series held outside of the USA. So there's Slamball Series 4 was. In 2015, so I don't know what's happened since then, but again, according to the Slam Ball website, it marked the elite emergence of handler Noah Ballou into a veritable, unstoppable talent in every facet of the game and his ascension to premier assist leader in the sport. Also notable was the breakout of five foot eight inch Chinese gunner, Lu Fang, who shocked the American players with his aggressive play and fearlessness. Fang's development is a singular moment in the sport and a clear indicator that slam ball stars will come from every country and corner of the globe. It's an uh, empowering, enlightening, intriguing story of the internationalization of extreme basketball. So maybe the issue here is that we need to take sports that are not mainstream and are extremely not extreme and extremify them. So thus I bring you Ultimate Dodgeball, which seems to have been created as a marketing vehicle for uh, this place called Sky Zone, which is one of those trampoline places where they have kids' birthday parties. Um, and been there, they played ha- it there. Skyzone? Yes. Ultimate Dodgeball? Do you like it? Ultimately, yes. It was fine. So, there's this, they have these competitions, and you can make money as one of the top uh, Ultimate Dodgeball players and teams. There's this team called Doom based in California that's won, I believe, four of the last five Ultimate Dodgeball Championships. It's a dynasty, and they have a player named Vince Marchbanks, who the Wall Street Journal wrote about a few years ago and described as the LeBron James of Dodgeball. This guy might also be the he-hate-me of dodgeball, except for the fact that his name is Vince Marchbanks. I found an interview that he did with dodgeballworldwide.blogspot.com where he said he started playing dodgeball when he was born, and they asked, uh, do you remember the first time you were on the court? The first time I played was when I was born. The doctor went to spank me, but I dodged his hand. My mom was so happy that she blew me a kiss. I caught it. I've been throwing since I first threw up. Doesn't that sound like lyrics to a blues song? <laughs> <laughs> no wait, so there's more there's uh, there's more fun with Vince Marchbanks. Your best hit. Just guess, who do you think his best hit on what was on? Give up. I give up. <laughs> My best hit was when I blasted NBA player Kyle Korver in the face. <laughs> wait, there's more. He fell. <laughs> What was the most beautiful moment in your career? The most beautiful moment was winning Sky Zone's Ultimate Dodgeball Championship the first time and receiving $26,000 with Doom. Until then, we only played dodgeball for pride and cheap medals. The big old check brought validity to our sport in the eyes of thousands of people around the world. I'm glad that he kept it realistic. Thousands. Family members and coworkers began to take us serious that following week when we told them what we had accomplished playing this kid's game. Finally, what is the worst moment in your career? We'll end on a bittersweet note. The worst moment was when I witnessed someone pass away while playing in a local open gym. I saw him collapse while he was in the outline. A friend in the paramedics tried desperately to resuscitate him, but he passed. He was one of the people who you count on being a dodgeball every week with a smile on his face, just enjoying life. That was a sad day for the dodgeball community in Los Angeles, but he taught us to live life to the fullest and to smile. Can I just point out that Kyle Corver is a dodgeball fanatic?
5: He has hosted four... Charity dodgeball tournaments for the Kyle
4: Corver Foundations. Kyle Corver
5: so, Foundations, <laughs> plural. Oh, God.
4: <laughs> most so recent, you guys should mo- have guessed. One was
5: the Dodge Shame
4: b- on you for not guessing <laughs> who he blasted in the
5: face. The most recent one was the Dodge Barrage last September at Georgia Tech.
4: All right. We'd love your feedback. I need, I need to make an announcement, today. though. If you go to What's the Sky that?
5: Zone,
6: Sky socks are required for all dodgeball players. And announcement 1A, there is no space between the sky and the socks in Sky Socks.
4: All right. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. If you go to one
5: of Kyle Corver's dodgeball tournaments, <laughs> participants may dress in costumes.
4: Oh, you can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll got their links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hang up. He calls it corv Subs- play.
5: <laughs> There's video.
4: <laughs> Subscribe on iTunes, iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. Please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Way to go, Patrick. Welcome. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Liktai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember to wear sky socks when you play Ultimate Dodgeball at Sky Zone. Anselmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.